What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off the Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Clay Collins is the co-founder and CEO of Nomix, a company focused on crypto market data. In this conversation, we discuss how crypto market data works, what the biggest challenges are, why exchange data transparency and identification of fake volume is so important, and how the price you see on most crypto websites gets there. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do as well. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang. I've got uh, Mr. Clay Collins here with us. Uh, super excited um, to dig into uh, all things crypto data. Uh, sir, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Pomp, it's great to be here. I'm, I'm excited to talk about the world's most exciting topic, uh, which is crypto data. It's exciting to me. But uh, yeah, it's, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. For sure. Let's start with uh, your background, and then we can uh, get into uh, you know what you're doing with Nomix. But what's your background for? Yeah. So yeah, can can talk about Nomix in a second. Uh, but uh, started out my my very first company was in the marketing tech space. It it is called Lead Pages. Uh, it's still around and and doing quite well. Uh, so I'm I'm really really proud of that. Uh, started that in January of 2013. And uh, found myself in a place uh, a few years later where that had grown to uh, over 150 employees. We had raised 38 million in venture capital from folks like uh, the Foundry Group, etc. And uh, at some point, I think around 120 people, I realized that I really had no business with my very first startup. Uh, you know, running running a company of that size. So I went to the board. Uh, I encouraged them to hire our COO. To be our CEO, and uh, I, I promptly uh, stepped stepped out of the way. You know, uh, three to four years uh, after starting that, but learned learned a ton during that process. Uh, acquired a company which is looking like it's going to actually big, be bigger than the original company um, that that we started. Both are growing well, but uh, you know, entrepreneurship is is in my bones. I was one of the kids that uh, you know had had the lemonade stand. It was always. Kind of hawking things, and um, you know, in, interested in the grind. Absolutely. And, and were you always interested in like building businesses, or was it more of just building, or, or kind of what what got you? You think interested in uh, in, in kind of you know being a uh, a repeat offender of starting companies? <laughs> yeah. So I'm not. I'm. I wouldn't say I'm a a serial entrepreneur. I, I really, I really like staying with things as as long as I possibly can, and and I prefer to go deep rather than to just do thing after thing after thing. But yeah, that's that's always been something I'm interested in, or you know, I've I've done. So um, I'm kind of a a weirdo. I was I was homeschooled, and um, my parents really didn't care what I did, other than I needed to know math. So I did my math work, and then the rest of the day. I was free to do whatever I wanted to, and I think I had a lot of intrinsic curiosity. I, you know, got a chemistry set, but where I found myself going most frequently was was business. So I was essentially doing my math work, 
and then running businesses on the side and and learning about what worked. And, and I think that's where kind of down the road, as as I became interested in in marketing and split tests and conversion rate optimization, I you know I noticed when I ran the uh, it was actually a, a, a orange juice stand by the side of the road. You know, if I if I place signs here versus here, more people tend to look at them. I'd watch cars drive by and see where they were looking. Uh, I'd split test different copy, and and it it seemed like there was just so much depth. There were so many things to learn about in that space. Everything from uh, you know from from accounting to copywriting to psychology and product. What what products are people interested in? How do you frame them? Things like that. So uh, I'm I'm really grateful. A lot of people kind of hate on on homeschooling. I, I don't think it works for everyone. I think it's really you know depends on on the child and and the individual. But for me, it was it was a really fantastic thing. I, I think I probably have uh, an undiagnosed uh, learning disability called dysgraphia. I remember I was in in school and. Uh, I was getting a lot of grief from teachers because I, I was winning the school spelling bees, but fell in, failing the spelling test. So there's something about actually writing it down that was hard for me. And uh, I just, I, when I see what that path would have turned into, it, it just would have been a lot of grief and having to conform to a system that I didn't want to be part of. So, um, so, so I think kind of having, like not having this artificial boundary between what you do for fun and what you do during the nine to five period, like that's that's something that's always been with me. Got it. And, and as you were doing that, right, I think this has become a much more popular uh, belief is that you can kind of, I call it like lifestyle design, right? So things that mm-hmm. you enjoy, you end up figuring out a way to uh, to make a living on it and, and spend the majority of your time doing it. Uh, did you feel like there was a point where you kind of, unlocked this or, or really understood it and then said, Hey, I'm going to go do lifestyle design. Uh, or did it just, was it more of kind of a transition over time? And then eventually, um, you know, you kind of look back and, and, uh, in hindsight said, Oh, wow, I, I've really figured out how to build a life where I get to do what I enjoy. Was it like a, a one-time moment or a transition? <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. The gr- great question. You know, I think I just had that for free when I was growing up. I didn't really have to think about lifestyle design. That was just the default was that I had a whole lot of discretion and uh, and, and my, my mother just trusted me. Um, so I think later in life, though, it was just this process of trying to get back to what I had when I was was younger. So I did eventually decide to, that I wanted to go to high school and have that experience. I wanted to go to prom and, you know, have some of those social things. Although I think I had a really social life as someone who was homeschooled. I did Boy Scouts and played like four hours of tennis a day and all kinds of stuff. But, uh, you know, so I, I did eventually end up dropping out of uh, high school at the age of 15 to start a, a software company. Um, so I guess that was technically my first software company. But post then, it, it was I really just hated um, cubicle work. I, I hated uh, college and then um, and then also hated graduate graduate school the first and the second time. Uh, I, I started a, a PhD program in developmental neuropsychology and like that lasted one year. So. I think I was trying to get back to this state that I had uh, growing up, and I, I f- did find that I returned to that um, at, you know, w- when I was in graduate school, I-, I found myself in this place where I had outsourced the job that was paying 100% of my tuition plus some money. I had found a way to outsource that, so I didn't have to do any of it. <clears throat> and then I had uh, another job uh, doing marketing consulting, and, and I charged, um, a, you know, a few hundred dollars an hour. And so I was in this place where my expenses were low 
And I was working around seven hours a week and could really do whatever I want. And, and I think that's where, you know, my adult entrepreneurial life began. But I do remember reading Tim Ferriss's four hour work week and being excited about that. And a lot of a lot of the stuff people were doing around lifestyle design, a lot of it wasn't for me. I think there were a lot of what I call like the lost, the lost boys of lifestyle design whose goal is, you know, they they want to you know, run a business from a laptop on a beach. And and I never found that that definition of, of lifestyle design really suited me. I think my, my idea of lifestyle design is um, having the resources to hire the best people I know to work 16 hours a day on a problem that I'm really, really passionate about. So, um, you know, I, I think lifestyle design for me is, is a lot more about going really deep and really hard with a huge group of talented people on something that, that I, I, um, you know, where I think there's an opportunity to um, really make a difference. Got it. And so how do you go from that to, uh, to Nomics? Yeah. So the transition is kind of interesting. I, I was in the, uh, with the, in the marketing tech space with, with my, when, with my startup lead pages. And I started seeing a, a really interesting trend <clears throat> happen from around like 2013 between 2013 and or around 2012 to 2013 to around 2016 2017 we saw like this doubling in the number of of vertical marketing tech saas apps so like roughly every single year the number of of entrants like software as a service entrants in that category was doubling and it was creating a really significant problem around distributed data sets so let's say you run a business or, or an e-commerce business, you know, you might have a situation where you have information about what emails were clicked on or, or opened in MailChimp. And you've got information about what webinars people attended, maybe in Zoom. And you've got information about uh, payments and stuff in, in Stripe. And you've got a different kind of data, maybe an anonymous page view data in Google Analytics. And the data is just, it's all over the place. And um, and, and so this creates an integration problem. So all these things need to talk to each other, but it also makes it really difficult to get a 360 view of, of the customer. So um, before my last company acquired a, a company that, that solves this problem, we were working on solving it internally. And uh, around the same time that we were thinking about this problem, I started looking at what was happening in the cryptocurrency space. And we saw something really similar. So a couple years ago, if you were ingesting data from about five to eight exchanges, you could on any given day capture 50% of the trading volume in the cryptocurrency space. And roughly a year later, you needed to be ingesting data from around 35 exchanges to get 50% of the trading volume in the space. And since then, the number of exchanges has gone through the roof. But not only has the number of exchanges gone through the roof, but the the volume is not is is become more and more distributed along the long tail. So I, I saw a very similar kind of issue that existed in the Martech space around distributed data sets and, and having to do just a whole bunch of integrations to get a, a 360 view of what was happening. I saw very similar problems around normalization of data and distribution of data in the crypto space. And so I started thinking about like what would a data platform in this space look like, and um, to me, the answer is really that it it all comes down to integration. 
um, and, and that coverage is king. So there's lots of fancy metrics you can do. There's a, a lot of stuff people can do once they have all the data. The problem is that it, it's, it's very, very difficult to get all the data. And you might think, okay, there's just a handful of important exchanges that are regulated and there's just a handful of markets on those. But then once you start taking into consideration uh, options, different contract types, order book data, the normalization of that stuff, and then you start looking at uh, security token exchanges, uh, exchanges for non-fungibles, and the tokenization of everything, um, this this becomes, uh, I believe, a, a really significant and important problem. So we started thinking about you know, what would it look like to create a platform whose sole purpose was to make integration as easy as, as, easy as possible? And, uh, and, and so that's what Nomics is. People see the website. Yeah, we, we price things. We have a really cool, I think, way of rating transparency for exchanges and, and a whole lot of other things. But, but at the end of the day, you know, I, I come from this product and this data platform and, uh, and, and that's, that's what we're attempting to do. Got it. So, so let's really dig into uh, kind of this data world in crypto, right? Because I think a lot of people uh, know that it might not be as, uh, I don't want to say legitimate, but just kind of as a high confidence level as data they may see in public markets or other assets. Um, describe how, whether it's Nomics or uh, CoinMarketCap or some of these other um, you know, products that provide pricing data, for example, or market cap data, how is that data actually derived? Like, what is the mechanism um, or, or the process to get that information onto those products? Yeah, that, so that's that's a really fantastic question and an astute one. Um, you know, in in I, I think most people in this space, I think there's far more people who understand how blockchain data works than market data. Uh, I, I really do, um, just because so many people in the space are crypto native. So yes, yeah, so you see these prices on websites and um, and then you start thinking about like, well, how are they, uh, how, how are they deriving them? And the answer is it's, it's kind of complicated. So, you know, like Nomics, CoinMarketCap, others um, post methodologies. And um, I think we have the most extensive description of our methodology for pricing a crypto asset of, of of anyone out there, a lot of folks just have like one or two sentences and it's hard to know what's really going into that. But yeah, I, I, in, in, it's kind of interesting because we get a lot of people who write in and say, Hey, I, you know, I think we found a bug on your website. Um, uh, you, you're, you're showing a different price for, um, like for tether than, than coin market cap is. And I, I try to explain to them that it's a, it's a feature, not a bug. And, and that there, there is no, one correct correct way to to price a crypto asset we you know we think we're doing it the correct way but there's a lot that goes into that so you know maybe a good way to dig into this would be to kind of explore how one might price a crypto asset like you know what does that journey look like so it's not <clears throat> it's not as straightforward as most people would think let's say we want to price <clears throat> a, a crypto asset like zero zero zrx so zero x so in order to do that, you should probably gather all the trading pairs on all the exchanges that have zero X. So an example of that might be you've got the the zero zero X to Ethereum market on Binance, for example. All right, so you and you you get a bunch of those markets um, where zero X is on either side. Although I think it's always the base currency, not the not the quote currency. I've never seen zero X is is the quote currency. Um, but okay, so so you've got zero X to Ethereum, and you're like, okay, well we're going to price zero X with Ethereum now that that we have this trading pair. Well, then the question emerges: 
how do you how do you price Ethereum, right? So you, if you're going to use Ethereum to price ZRX, now you have to price Ethereum. So do you include all the Ethereum markets like Ethereum to Tether? Um, you might. I, I would rather not use Tether to price Ethereum in, in many instances. Um, but so if, if you're using pairs like Ethereum to Tether to price ZRX, then, then that begs the question, well, how do you price Tether? <laughs> you can't just say it's worth a dollar. Um, so, so then the question emerges, well, how do you, how do you quote the price of Tether? Do you use, do you use markets like Qtum to Tether? You know, some of these really crappy shitcoin markets, um, you know, and, and a lot of, a lot of these pricing websites and aggregators do, they'll use Qtum to USDT on some crappy exchange and that in, ends up influencing the price of Ethereum and, and ZRX. Uh, and it can it can become really circular. You can be using uh, Ethereum markets to price Bitcoin, and then you can be using you know Bitcoin to price Ethereum markets, and and it it really gets complicated after a while. So I can't speak to how others are doing this, <clears throat> but I can speak to how we're doing it. So how we do this is we have uh, a couple rounds where we're pricing things. So the the first round of pricing is we use. Um, uh, Ethereum to fiat and BTC to, to, to fiat pairs to price uh, Ethereum and, and Bitcoin. So we use all the trading pairs that involve Ethereum and Bitcoin that are traded against fiat to, to price those two crypto assets, Ethereum and Bitcoin. And the reason why we do this is because we think it, it anchors us to the real world, right? If you're using Qtum to Tether to price Ethereum, you know, pretty soon you're off in La La Land and people, there isn't great price discovery and these, these sort of these, these inputs to pricing are, are very off base of how rational people think about value. So, um, so we'll use these, these fiat markets to price Ethereum and Bitcoin, and then we'll use um, all the... Uh, trading pairs that include Ethereum and Bitcoin as the quote currency to price those kind of those those secondary um, altcoins, and that that was working for a, a while until we started to see the emergence. And, and this is still basically what we do. But then we started to see the emergence of stable coins as quote currencies, um, and also exchange tokens as quote currencies. So, you know, you might see a Bitcoin to USDC or a market or a, you know, Ethereum to, to Tether market. And, and those, at some point, if you start looking at the dominance of quote currencies in the space, you, ha you had times where um, actually most of the time, many of these stable coins in terms of like quote currency volume are far outranking um, fiat. Like fiat as a percentage of, of volume as a trading pair in the crypto space is very, very small. So if if we have Bitcoin or Ethereum against um, a, a stable coin where Bitcoin or Ethereum is the, the base currency in the, in the trading pair, so that first currency, then we will allow for bidirectional pricing. Anyway, I'm getting off in the weeds here, but the, the essence of it is we use fiat to price Ethereum and Bitcoin and we use those prices to price everything else. And um, it, it works pretty well. I, another component of this, which a lot of people don't talk about or think about, is um, what, what you do with um, outlier detection. So if you want to include all exchanges, which actually we don't encourage people to do, but if you want to use all exchanges for the purposes of, of pricing these assets, you have to think about what, what to do with, um, with, with crazy outliers. So sometimes we'll see 
It's really bizarre, and uh, it's probably fraud in most cases. But we'll see this bid like leap across the ask, you know, like Michael Jordan going to do a slam dunk. And uh, we'll see this bid leap across the ask and purchase, you know, like some crappy, crappy coin, you know, way out of the money, you know, and, and, and way, way off market. Um, and it'll be a huge price, um, and, but, a, but a small amount of volume. And if you're doing volume weighted pricing, that still moves the price. So um, another thing that goes into this is, is outlier detection. And um, the way we do outlier detection is on a per trade basis. Um, most of our competitors are doing outlier detection on a per, like on a trading pair basis, on an exchange trading pair basis. So instead of just taking out the, you know, the few trades that seem to be uh, fraudulent, um, they'll take out the entire trading pair on that exchange for the purpose of, uh, of pricing that, that crypto asset. And there's a, a million debates to be had about how to do that. But that also factors in, into it as well. And then you get a price on, on a website like ours or, you know, others. Got it. And, and so, you know, look, there's a lot of components here. Um, and you described not only how the price gets to the website of the product, but also uh, some of the, what I'll call like high risk areas are right in that process mm -hmm. what, what would you say are um the most common right so when i think of like crypto exchange data um there's a lot of as uh, travis Kling from uh ike guy says there's a lot of fuckery going on right <laughs> shenanigans yep. yeah shenanigans, whatever you want to call it right and what, what's going what's what's happening is uh there's the wash trading there's all kind of spoofing right there's all these different things what do you see as the number one most common thing that affects price uh, that maybe listeners aren't aware of? Right. So, so like, is it is it the spoofing? Uh, spoofing? Is it the washing? Like, what, like, what is it? Yeah. So there's there's a there's a couple things. One, I think it's just volumes are off. So there's a lot of uh, there's a type of exchange spamming that I call uh, ticker stuffing, where um, exchanges that only report data in tickers, which we can talk about what a ticker is in a second, just inflate a ton of volume. They just they just change a, a number on, on their data set and they send it over to <clears throat> to CoinMarketCap or others. And now the volume is really inflated. So let's say you have like Bitcoin to Tether uh, on, on one of those exchanges and it's it's like Negoci Coins, which is this Brazilian exchange that no one's ever heard of. Even people in Brazil are like, this isn't even the, the biggest exchange. And that was at the top of, of CoinMarketCap's exchange rankings for a while, posting like double Binance's volume or something. It was like 1.6 billion, you know, on, on a few markets. And <clears throat> so if if they're using some wacky pricing, if, if someone's using a wacky pricing methodology to price Tether and the volume on that is 1.6 billion, um, you're going to get a, you're just going to get a really, really crazy price um price for bitcoin so i'd say for bitcoin for you know for the most part it's it's pretty stable you're not going to see something that's like several hundred dollars off the mark but but a lot of a lot of this you know a lot of the shenanigans are in, in my opinion and what we see in our data are really tied to stable coin pricing so we think a lot about um how stable coins are priced so um let's let's say for example the you've got the the tether the price of Tether, there's only a handful. There's really only a handful of fiat to Tether markets. So Bitfinex has one and, you know, where you can <clears throat> take USD. I don't know why anyone would do this. Uh, you you take USD and you could buy Tether. 
And the price there is usually lower than the price of, of Tether in other places. So we heavily, we heavily weight our Tether price to the, the fiat price of Tether. I mean, that's, you know, so um, we, that, that affects how, you know, how we price Tether. And then that flows through the entire market, right? Like if, if, if Tether's the most popular uh, quote currency and the price of Tether changes, Whoa, like the ramifications of that are, are huge. You're talking about billions upon billions of dollars in volume. <clears throat> I'd say the, the, the second, you know, most common, or I'd say the most common egregious uh, shenanigan is, is, you know, when, when people, when, when, I don't know. So if you're a centralized exchange and this happens, then your matching engine just sucks. But we'll, where you'll see the bid hop across the ask and pick off some, you know, it, sometimes it's even Bitcoin though. Someone will buy like a like they'll buy, buy a small amount of Bitcoin out at some outrageous price, and 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 that will that will move the market as well. We see that mostly on decentralized exchanges where. Um, you know, because of the way, you know, because sometimes these matching engines are on chain, their APIs do allow you to snipe off a particular order on the order book that might be at some out, outrageous price. So that'll that'll move the market as well. Another another thing that people do, which is just it's just ignorance, and, and they don't know to not do this, but they'll use um, derivatives and uh, options contracts <laughs> that might be like insanely leveraged to price. To price these assets as well, so they might be using uh, BitMEX data and and those contracts to price Bitcoin, which like should not be done. And uh, that's just again not knowing how to do this correctly. Absolutely. And what do you think is the impact of just bad pricing data? Right. Like, is it something where uh, investors just make bad decisions, or they're much more um, negative impact to uh, to having? You know, not even necessarily false data as much as it is just inaccurate. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think I think there's a few problems um, for for the end user that sort of uh, that arise out of this. Um, the first problem is that someone might go to some of these exchange rankings um, and these exchange ranking websites, and you know, if you go to Coin Market Cap today, like you'll see exchanges you've never heard of, and that you could call everyone you know, and they could call everyone they know. You're like, I've never heard of this exchange, um, and and it's it's in the top five. So people who are newer to the space might go to those kinds of rankings and see exchanges and assume that because they have a lot of markets and because someone like coin market cap oh yeah here it is nego c coins right now, like literally right now uh is is posting you know 2.7 billion dollars in in 24 hour volume and that's that's with their adjusted metric that's not that's like they're supposed to be their good one where they adjust for shenanigans um so someone someone might go to this website and see an exchange they're new to the space and they're like i want I want an exchange with deep markets. And so I'm going to go here and they end up going to one of these exchanges. They place an order and they just like blow through the order book and they end up paying a lot more for a crypto asset than they should because the liquidity isn't there. So I think, I think the number one problem is that it's, it's hard for people who don't know what they're doing to get good information about liquidity. And then when you're on an exchange that has bad liquidity and you put in even small orders, that's going to move the market a lot and you're going to end up Pay, paying more, so I think that's I think that's the biggest problem. I think 
all the other problems, um, you know, other than that, or many of them, uh, relate to real time trading environments and people who are, you know, just making knee knee jerk decisions. Um, so, for example, <clears throat> you know what what we think happened. We can't say for sure, but uh, if you recall uh, back in the day on Coin Market Cap, the they they. Um, excluded Korean exchanges from their calculations. And uh, overnight, the price of a lot of things dropped. And there were a lot of fund managers and fund administrators that were using CoinMarketCap data to provide like NAV statements to investors. And it looked like people lost a lot of money. Um, you know, what, what we believe happened there was that the Korean markets were just algorithmically excluded um, using their um, their outlier detection model. Um, so there's things like that. There's things like, um, you know, just collisions of, of, of symbols. So there's a, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of weirdness around symbols. You might think you've spotted an arbitrage opportunity. There's a bat token and then there's bats, basic attention token. And, uh, one of, one of the customers that we had come to us, like spotted some arbitrage opportunity in a real-time trading environment executed on that. They're like, what the hell? This isn't even the same. <laughs> this isn't even the same token. So if you're if you have machines trading for you, it, it makes all the difference in the world. Um, but uh, in, in general, I think it has to do with with liquidity on these exchanges, and um, and and also um, you know if if you're back testing and you want to do some strategy back testing, um, it, it can be really hard to get accurate order book data. You might say, hey, I, you know, I have this amazing model. And uh, according to this model, I'm going to be just fine because, you know, if I, if I execute against the trades that my model says I should execute against, I'm, uh, you know, there's going to be a lot, enough li liquidity for me to make money here, even with, with low, low margins or, you know, small spreads because the order book data is here, but the order, you know, the orders on these exchanges are all spoofed. And uh, it turns out that that, you know, it's just not a viable trading strategy at all for you because at no point would you have been able to trade any near, anything near what, what, what you thought you would, um, it, you know, without, without moving the market a lot. So I, I think it, it has a lot to do with, with, with moving the market, with deciding which exchange to use. Um, the prices themselves, um, you know, tend to work themselves out over time, but they're definitely huge blips in, in periods here or there where what you're seeing just simply um, uh, sim simply is not true. Got it. And, and so as as you've been building this, um, how do you think when this gets solved, like, mm -hmm. what are we going to see? Do, do we actually see kind of a um, conversion where uh, binomics or, or another um, kind of data aggregator slash uh, provider um, kind of getting it right, does that force the rest of the market to follow suit? Or can there actually be some, uh, some pretty big uh, disintermediation between um, what we'll consider kind of accurate data versus non-accurate data? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that's, that's, that's a really good question. So I think that the best analogy to use here is really is really spam. So I've been talking about data quality and all this nerdy stuff. And I, I think I'm probably the least interesting person at the crypto party and people's eyes start to, you know, roll or glaze over. Um, but uh, I think people really started getting it when we, when we started talking about volume spam, uh, ticker stuffing and, and, and exchange spamming, because that's really the best analogy. I think about this, like, like uh, Google. So, you know, at, at the end of the day, uh, who owns the top of the funnel in the space? 
probably coin market cap right now. Like they they have more traffic than anyone else, and um, so there, there's a, a lot of interest. There's there's a lot of benefits to being there. So it's probably analogous to maybe having Google um, for the World Wide Web. And Google has an algorithm for trying to figure out if all these SEO professionals, search engine optimization professionals, are you know manipulating the quality score of these pages, or or trying to um, you know sort of I guess pull shenanigans and, and and get to the top. And it's just an arms race. It's it's um, it's never. I don't think anyone's ever going to get it right permanently. I think it's the kind of thing where like we came out with our exchange um, our exchange index. Um, before anyone else that I know of, and then um, uh, CoinGecko did, and it looks like CoinMarketCap is going to be doing some things. But it's one of those things where everyone's going to do it, and as soon as we, um, as soon as we sort of um, plug one hole, another one's going to emerge, and it's 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 like email, you know, like people start off. Just, you know, you could put, uh, you know, pills and Viagra in an email and it would get through just fine. And then, you, you know, maybe you'd, you'd replace an O with a zero or you'd replace uh, an L with a one and it could get through. Um, and then people would, you know, take they take pictures of the images and put those in the email and then Gmail would catch up to that. And then and then it would just get more and more sophisticated. They'd be swapping out IP addresses and. Uh, and, and I think that's what it's going to be like. And I think it's never going to end because this space with permissionless innovation, I think there's going to be more exchanges over time, not less. Uh, I think there will be a few periods of consolidation, but uh, essentially I think, you know, anyone can start, um, you know, a, a cryptocurrency exchange overnight with something like zero, zero X. And, um, and, and I think there's just going to be an explosion of venues where you can get, you know, maybe even just like local security tokens for projects you're interested in. I, I really do see that happening. And then there's, derib- there's so many tokenized projects. So, um, so I, I see this trend continuing and I think it's an arms race that never ends. And I think it's one of those things where as a product company, you just need to have a, a dedicated team of, of people thinking about this. And uh, exposing, you know, whatever you want, you know, exposing sort of correct ways of thinking about this. Right now, it's still fairly easy. <clears throat> like on our on our exchanges page, we show the Alexa rank, and so one of the things that I've been looking at is the ratio of like volume to Alexa rank. <laughs> and you can still find people, you know, with with those types of things. For for those of of you who don't know what Alexa rank is, it's a it's a ranking of top websites. So like if you're nine seventy nine, that means you're the nine hundred seventy ninth most popular website on the internet, which is like what Binance was a couple of days ago. So if you see if you see a website that has an Alexa rank that's like in the hundreds of thousands or millions and they claim to be doing more volume than Binance, and that's probably off. So there's still a lot of like really like simple, easy stuff that that we're doing right now to to find people. And and that seems to work. Um, an, another thing that works for us is is just um transparency. So when we when we looked at Bitwise's report to uh, the SEC, where they claimed that there were only ten exchanges with uh, with actual Bitcoin volume, um, we we started looking at the kind of data that those exchanges were providing, and we found that uh, of the ten exchanges that Bitwise said were good actors, uh, eight of those provide full historic trade level data. So it means you don't have to trust their candles. You can build the candles yourself with with individual trades. It's super tedious and a pain. But but you can do it. So you can audit their candles and <clears throat> you can audit uh, a lot of stuff that they're saying. And so so 8 out of 10 provided full history, 
on all the trading pairs, you know, going back to to inception, uh, and of the it's like around twenty exchanges, twenty five that they explicitly called out as doing things that were questionable. Um, it, it was it was around thirty exchanges. <clears throat> Only two provided uh, full historic trade level data. So, and that makes sense, right? Because if 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 you get enough history with enough granularity on someone, sooner or later you're going to find you're going to find the shenanigans. It's it's almost like an IRS audit. If you get audited by the IRS, maybe you can hide what you're doing if you provide six months of data and it's really really high level statements. But once they start, you know, seeing the receipts for every single transaction, they go back five years. If there's something to find, even if you didn't mean to do it, they're probably going to find it. So um, we've just found a, a willingness from from top exchanges to provide really high level or, or really granular data with with a with a lot of history, and so that's that's really important to us when when we look at exchanges in, in kind of in combination with things like Alexa Rank. For sure, and, and I guess as you're thinking through um, kind of data exchanges um, quality. How does all of this fit into this narrative of like the institutionalization of Bitcoin and crypto, right? This idea that uh, whether it is large financial service companies or uh, people like pensions, endowments, foundations coming in, what uh, how does that like impact or, or influence um, the quality of the data? Yeah, no. So that's that's a that's a really great question. So I think the the old model of doing this. Is is very much like you know the the New York Stock Exchange and and uh, Nasdaq model, where you know they almost all, um, all almost all trading happens through those two exchanges in the United States. So they have a monopoly on the data, and then they can seek rent on that data because they're really the only ones that have it. And then they can charge like a billion dollars to collate collocate your server somewhere for high frequency traders. Um, uh, well, you know what what we're finding in this space is that in a lot of instances, market data is a distribution channel for exchanges. So if you're a new exchange, <clears throat> what's your what's your product? Well, your your product really are these trading pairs. And when every time people trade across them, you make a cut. So you really want to programmatically um, expose. You know when you've listed new coins, when you have new trading pairs, you you really want to share as much of it as possible. So we don't we don't think there's going to be, um, you know, we we don't think the re- response is going to be like, oh, there's huge consolidation and there's only a couple of exchanges, um, precisely because we found that even among our largest institutional customers, they're interested in exchanges with the most liquidity. They're interested in Bitmex data. They're interested in in Binance data. They're they're interested in all the places that everyone else is, and we'll go to them. and I won't name names here, but we'll say, "Hey, how about this super reputable exchange that you've all heard of that's regulated?" And they'll be like, eh, "Can we get the Binance and Bitmex data?" Um, so I, I think it's it's I think liquidity is going to be king in terms of where um, the institutions go. What I do think they want is some kind of assurance um, that's auditable that what you're saying is true and what the exchange is saying is true is actually true. So I think this is going to come through market forces. I think the market is the is, is and it's already happening in a big way, especially in the aftermath of the Bitwise report. Um, institutions are demanding more transparency, more history, more granularity. 
And um, it's not this thing where exchanges are charging a million dollars. It's the kind of thing where like, that's just the the price of in- entry. Like you just have to give up that stuff in order to gain trust in an environment that, you know, where, the, where there isn't a lot of trust. So I think that is going to be, you know, more open and uh, more granular and, and more history over time is among the, among the good actors and the ones that want to gain trust among institutions. Got it. What, uh, what's next for uh, Nomics? Where, where do you kind of take it from here and then what, what's kind of on the plate? Yeah. So th- there's really, there's really two things. Uh, one is, you know, we're, we're an integration machine. We were, we were built around integrations from day one. So I think people can expect, um, you know, 400 plus more exchanges here in, in the near future. But the goal is not to treat them all the same. It's to rank them algorithmically. So that's sort of the second component of this is providing more quality indicators, uh, more proprietary quality indicators. So we have one already. There's there's more on the way. But really, at the end of the day, <clears throat> you know, we've, we've seen companies get really ambitious in this space and they'll have on-chain data, they'll have exchange data, they'll have momentum indicators and all kinds of crazy signals and who's posting what on Reddit and Telegram groups and GitHub and um, and all kinds of, you know, 20 million third-party scores and stuff like that. And, and I think that's fine if you're like a, an aggregator of aggregators. Um, but we think there's so much to be done here still around... Uh, around the boring basics, around things like, um, you know, normalization of data and tokens changing their symbols. And so how do we follow that history over time? We think there's more to be done around uh, algorithmically, you know, detecting wash trading and, you know, open sourcing those methodologies. So we're, we're going, we're going very, very deep as opposed to wide, um, except when it comes to exchange coverage we're going very very wide but uh it's it's it, the the hard problems are still there and there's still a, a lot of work to do the space still doesn't know how to think or talk about exchange data or market data in this space like we still have um analysts coming to us from really you know places that you think would understand this and they don't even know how to ask for what they want there's the the language isn't there the the, the practices aren't aren't well established or developed so um there's there's just a lot a lot more boring basics and we think of ourselves like a utility company we're like the power company or you, you know something like that where it's it's just about doing boring things really well and improving infrastructure over time got it before uh, before I wrap up, I always uh, go through some rapid fire questions. What uh, what, Let's do it. what do you think is the most important company in crypto? Uh, I think right now it's probably Binance. Why? Um, I think they are doing some really interesting things with Binance Chain. I, I think it's re- Binance Chain. Um, they, they've taken basically the core value prop of Ethereum, or at least what people are using it for, and they've isolated it there. I think it's really interesting as a business practice, and I really like this, to create your like, you know, your your evil twin. So they've got the centralized exchange and now they've got a, a decentralized exchange. It's it's almost like, you know, on one hand you're gonna create Nordstrom's and you're gonna create Walmart and you're gonna see who wins. Um, or or hopefully they'll they'll both win. So they're they're willing to cannibalize uh, existing businesses with with new incumbents that come from them. I think that you know what they're doing with fiat and um and and arbitrage across jurisdictions is really really interesting and i also think that they can out execute just about anyone in the space um so uh 
that in and of itself is really impressive. Absolutely. What uh, what's the one regulation that you would change or improve if you could? Um, I, I mean, I, I'm like everyone. I just wish there was more regulatory clarity. Um, and also as a uh, holder of cryptocurrencies, um, I think the maybe the one thing I'd like to change is I, I, I would not like to see at least Bitcoin be a commodity. I think every time you make a purchase on your Bitcoin credit card, that shouldn't be a taxable event. I think it, it'd be really fantastic if a lot of this stuff were simplified. I think that's fair. What, um, what, what is the one thing you believe in crypto that everyone else would disagree with you on? Like your most controversial thought? I think Dharma and projects like Dharma, which are built around uh, on-chain lending, are the second most important um, thing in the space behind Bitcoin. Why? Um, because like, you know, um, uh, you know, be, because, um, lending markets are way, are much larger than almost any other market out there. I think, you know, we're looking for the killer use case and most people won't, uh, adopt most, at least most, most people don't have a ton of money to buy this stuff, but they will adopt it if they can get a loan. And uh, I think that, um, it's, it's incredibly hard to earn interest and to take out loans in the space, and and if and if that could be opened up, like every small business owner here, like in in the world, I think would potentially get involved and much faster than anyone thinks. Got it. I, I think so. I don't know if I necessarily agree it's the second most important thing, but I will agree that it is probably undervalued, right, or or underappreciated. Kind of um, what's going on there and and what it can yeah. become, um, you know, relative to kind of how people are thinking about it today. So that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know that I've had it, you know, I might, I might've said something different if I had more time to think like, what do you think is the second most <laughs> important thing in this space? For me? Yeah. Um, <laughs> honestly, I think Bitcoin's the first and I think Bitcoin infrastructure is the second, right? Yeah. Okay. Fair, fair enough. Well, yeah. The, the way I think about it is just, uh, the, you know, you, if you think of Bitcoin as like kind of the inner circle like on a target right like it's the bullseye and then like that first ring around the bullseye is like bitcoin infrastructure then if you look at um you know the second ring maybe it's like institutional adoption of bitcoin right like you kind of have like this whole target of just bitcoin and then there's a second target of like everything else right i think that that else has uh, a lot of value if you ask me what's the bullseye in everything else uh i'm not sure Right. Like I actually don't know if I could put something there. And so that's, you know, both um, not a good answer, but also I think that's part of the opportunity. Right. It's eventually yeah. there will be something there that I think we all look at and say, of course, that's the bullseye of like the second target. Um, and the people who were there early and, and understood that and foresaw it will, uh, will will be pretty pleased, I think. Yeah, so I, I agree with that. I think I was lumping Bitcoin and Bitcoin infrastructure together, but you can't take the infrastructure for granted. It's there's so much to do. I was reading this this uh, tweet some, where someone was talking about exchanges instead of listing a million coins should just go incredibly deep and just provide a whole bunch of you know infrastructure stuff around Bitcoin. But um, that's that's easier than, said than done. For sure. What uh, what's the most important book you've ever read? Oh, that's a really good question. Um. So I, I think I'm just going to go, uh, I, so, uh, so this is like super weird, but there's, uh, there's a, a book by a guy named Wim Hof who has this thing called the Wim Hof method. And he encourages people to take 
you know, to hold their breath and yep. take cold showers. And he's a crazy, but he holds the world record for like swimming the longest under ice or something, all kinds of crazy stuff like that. And, um, you know, it, it, at first I, I got in, involved with that because I thought maybe I'll lose a lot of weight. Cause I, you know, I, I had some weight loss goals and some health goals at the time, but, um, you know, yesterday I held my breath for four minutes and it's been the craziest meditation experience of my life. I've, I probably grown more in the last, maybe six months of, of doing the Wim Hof method and particularly the, the, the breathing exercises than I have like maybe in the last six years. So it, I feel like I've gotten six years of therapy in six months. Um, and, and he, and he has a book called like the way of the ice man or something like that, which is a, a good explanation of his values, but it's really the, the, the method. So I don't know if that's the most important. It's been probably personally, it's been the most important book to me. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think, I'm, I'm trying to think more broadly, <clears throat> and uh, I'm coming up. Sh- I'm coming up short. I'm j- I, although I just say a bunch of obvious stuff, so I won't. Uh, it's stuff like uh, sapiens and whatnot. But um, the, personally, the Wim Hof method has been fantastic for me. Awesome. No, I love it. I love it. Um, what uh, What do you think about aliens? Real? Not real? Complete farce? Oh yeah. I mean, I think they. I think they. I, I think that the universe is infinite, which means there's an infinite number of you know ways that life can emerge. So I think there probably is life out there somewhere. I don't know if they're visiting in flying saucers or look like any of those other things, but I, I think there is there is life on other planets and that life is likely evolving. And uh, given a long enough time horizon, you know, provided that we don't go extinct as a species, we'll, we'll probably meet up with them at some point and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. There's not a th- th- there's not a lot of people who would uh, who would think it that way, but it's uh, it's definitely possible. <laughs> for sure. Um, for all sure. right. End up. I uh, let you ask me one question. What uh, what do you got for me? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I was thinking about this. Um. Okay. So you're like I think you're incredible on Twitter. It's been fun watching you. You know, grow your personal brand, and I, I think. I think I'd love to hear a little bit from you about how you think about personal brand, the opportunity around personal brand in the crypto space. And, you know, given the opportunity cost of doing anything compared to doing something else that might generate a higher return, um, why have you decided to place so much emphasis there and how does that fit into your kind of long-term plan? So that's, that's a huge question, but... Um, I got a really simple answer. Uh, okay. I actually think of it completely opposite. So mm. I've never once thought about personal brand. I literally think about doing what makes me happy and doing whatever the fuck I want. Right. That's how I think about it. And the reason why I do that is because I think people are attracted to the tweets and you know everything that I do. Because I don't try to build my brand. Like actually, if I was if I was being intentional about building a brand, I wouldn't say probably half of the things that I say. Right? I wouldn't, you know, fly to the Bahamas and go interview John McAfee on his boat. Like that's actually like not a good thing for brand building. Right? But guess what? I wanted to go do that. And I didn't think that there was anything wrong with doing it. And I thought it'd be a cool life experience. And the day I'm laying on my you know deathbed, but I'm glad I did that. And so yeah. I think that that's really how I look at it. It's just like, I don't care about brand, right? Mm-hmm. But in a weird way, like that almost becomes a brand, right? And, and so it, it's almost this aspect of like, 
if I'm excited, you know, I'm excited on the internet. Like you can just tell right in the way I tweet and do all this stuff. If I'm not feeling something like I'm not afraid to say that, right. I'm not scared of topics. I'll, I'll talk about anything. I'll go anywhere. Right. I'll, I'll kind of do the things that uh, I find interesting. Now there's a lot of people who I think wish they did that stuff or took a position that way. Um, but they don't. And so they end up usually being, um, you know, kind of watching, right. Or, or, you know, being, um, really positive, uh, towards me because it's almost like, oh, well, if I can't do that because I have a job or a reputation or, um, you know, my family's not going to like it or whatever, uh, then they're almost kind of like living vicariously through me. Um, and then the other aspect is, uh, I would be horrible at building a brand. Right. Like I threw it up. Um, I, I literally would, uh, I, I joke all the time and think about like with my friends, I'm like, imagine if I was responsible for like helping somebody like at a, at a corporation build like the company brand, I'd be fired immediately. <laughs> They're like, Oh, look at this. Cool. We're excited about Bitcoin. Like just literally tweet all caps, like buy Bitcoin. Like, you can't do that. Right. So it's just very, um, I think authentic, like this is who I am in the sense of uh, like what I tweet, what I say, how I act. Uh, I'm not a hundred percent turned on all the time, right? Which is a, another kind of weird thing. So like, if you think of most people who like build a brand, they actually put themselves through like a, an aspect of like suffering in order to keep that brand. So like, if you're always the intellectual, sometimes they want to say a joke, but they don't say the joke because they don't want to be perceived as not serious and an intellectual, right? And vice versa, people who are funny, sometimes they don't say that intelligent thing that they have because they don't want to be perceived as like the nerd, right? They're the cool kid. And so like, for me, like, that's just a life that like, I'd hate, right? Having to like, think before I do things that I want to do. Right. And yep. so it doesn't mean I'm going to be perfect every time, but I also own my mistakes. So if I say something and I'm wrong, I'm like, oh shit, I'm an idiot. Like, I, you know, I, I was wrong. And yep. just the ability to like transparently own when I'm right or wrong, or, or if I say something and somebody's offended, like, I, I think that people are really just drawn to the authenticity. And then, like, look, it's selfish, right? On the, on the flip side. I get to do the things that I want to do every day. Like I'm the fucking luckiest dude in the world, <laughs> right? Because I get to do that. And so it, it, it's just more of, um, I think, like really getting comfortable with, uh, I could be wrong um, in public. I could be embarrassed in public, right? I, I, I could fail in public, but all of that is an okay trade-off and I'm comfortable with that as the downside for the upside of being able to do the things that I want to do and, and really just kind of enjoying life while I'm here. Okay. Can I ask a follow-up question? Can I go ahead? Okay. Okay. So, so I hear you. Uh, and that seems like, I don't think anyone could be as successful kind of doing what you're doing if they didn't authentically enjoy it. So I, I believe that it's just like, that's just who you are. Um, but it, there, there, there also does seem to be, and this is not a bad word coming from an entrepreneur. There doesn't seem to be like some like ambition behind it. Like I'm pretty sure some bot who was you followed me and then unfollowed. Like you have goals there, and I'm sure it gets you access to stuff. And like you're doing some growth hacky things. Like what? I mean, is there is there some element of like? it's not just for pure expression. Like there does seem to be a reward that enforces you that reinforces it. And 
is there like a level of ambition beyond just like this is just fun or is that just it? Oh, I, I've I, listen. I've never uh, been shy about saying, and, and I've tweeted, you know, f- literally I think for like two or three years now. Like, audience is the new currency, right? And yeah. Aspect yep. of um, again, not everyone's going to agree with me. I bet you half the people who follow me literally follow me because they think I'm an idiot, <laughs> right? Like, it, it's this weird thing. Um, but look, I, I you know ran. Uh, growth team at Facebook. Like I understand how a lot of this yep. works. I've been able to uh, be very fortunate to see the benefits of having a large audience, both from uh, what I consider like creators and entertainers to, you know, literally Mark and Cheryl at Facebook um, to, to even the things that I've done. Right. And, and so I've yep. never been shy about, uh, I want to put my ideas out in the world and get them in front of as many people as possible. Right. And, uh, and I don't, I come from a world, uh, and maybe it's just like the growth mindset of like all of these quote unquote growth hacks. I have no problem with anyone doing them. Right. Yeah. And I actually think that it is, uh, social media, Twitter is a great example, right? Like Twitter provides you tools. If you do not want to follow somebody, you can unfollow them. If you do not want to hear from them anymore, you can block them or mute them right? People don't do that. What they'd rather do is they'd rather complain about the fact that somebody's always in their feed, blah, 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 whatever. And so I think that we really do uh, kind of get into this spiral. Um, But but again, I really look at it as, you know, look at like what I do for a professional real job uh, during the day, right? Which is my job is to take institutional investors' capital, invest it into uh, companies that are being built by world-class entrepreneurs, and grow that money at you know, 20 30 40% compounded annually, right? Yeah. And if I can do that, I will continue to be able to do that. I'll get rewarded by, giving, by being given the opportunity to continue doing my job. If we're not good at it, eventually people stop giving us money, right? And so um, you know, one of the things that we think about a lot and I talk about all the time is uh, having that audience is a really defendable thing. There is not another investor in crypto that can walk into a room and tell an entrepreneur, when you go to launch your product, I can put enough traffic to your website to crash your website. It's not going to happen, right? And yeah. it's super defendable. Um, and, and so I think that part of that is uh, that audience is powerful, but also that audience is an echo chamber, right? Like I'm not, I'm not confused or, or not self-aware enough to realize that this is only possible in crypto, right? Like if you say to me right now, hey, uh, go and talk about pretty much anything else in the world other than Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, like I'd have zero influence, zero power, right? It's a very kind of niche thing. Um, And then also, if I tweet something positive, it goes crazy. If I were to start to question like Bitcoin and crypto, it'd probably get like no engagement. Right, <laughs> very much an echo chamber. I'm just—I like to think at least I'm self-aware enough to know that, and it's—I'm not using Twitter to educate myself, right? I'm using it more as a broadcast uh, mechanism than anything, and then I go and I consume content elsewhere that I think is kind of more um, balanced in terms of uh, people looking at a topic, you know, pros and cons, or, or believers and detractors, etc. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, you know, so I, I heard your 
you know, kind of the way you described why you do this. And it reminded me of this Howard Thurman quote, okay. who said, uh, it said, don't ask what the world needs, ask what makes you come alive and go do it because what the world needs is more people who have come alive. So I think that example of uh, just going to talk to John McAfee, like the payoff there is probably very little in the scheme of things, but uh, that made you come alive. You were on a boat somewhere talking to one of the most interesting people in the world right now. So I, I can I can completely identify. Thanks for sharing that. I, I appreciate you letting me uh, get a question here. Yeah, look, it, it's, uh, it, it's a thing where I, I just, you know, I really, really wish more people uh, kind of lived their life, right? It, it's, uh, it's probably beat dead at this point but I, I really do think a lot of people end up uh kind of end of their life having regrets and because they were worried about what everyone else thought right and and so i don't think there's anyone in the world who who can say honestly i don't care what anybody thinks right because it, it could be your family it could be your loved one it, you know it could just be a friend right but you care what somebody in the world thinks it's just can you decipher the difference between uh, those that actually matter in your life and what they think versus the people who actually don't matter at all, right? And, and not really worrying what they think. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 really cool. It's really cool when the when the market values that too. Like, you know, you you probably enjoy just talking to crypt, to people about crypto any you know anyway and asking questions about what's happening and uh, and then now you can do this professionally so it's 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 really awesome to to observe you know absolutely look man I uh, I appreciate you uh, um, you, you coming on I think that uh, people will really enjoy it I learned a lot um, about kind of how this data is created and what some of the issues are and stuff and then hopefully we will over time um, you'll be able to bring you back and uh, and you can say hey it's gotten better <laughs> <laughs> but uh but but i really uh, appreciate you taking time to do this and uh, i hope uh, everyone else enjoys it as well hey everyone pop here if you like this episode of off the chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the apple spotify and other podcast charts please do us a favor and rate review and subscribe to review simply go to the off the chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off the Chain.